You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Allison Schrager is an economist, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor to the City Journal, and co-founder of Lifecycle Finance Partners LLC, a risk advisory firm. I've been reading her work for some time now. She writes about risk and uncertainty, and I have asked her to join us today to talk about those things. Allison, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you explain how risk is a balance between the potential upside gain, but also the potential for downside loss? I I think oftentimes we don't separate those two in our evaluation of risk. Can you just talk about why it's important to look at both upside and downside? Well, you know, I think that's what we call taking a managed risk. I mean, we've gotten a, a little strange about how we think about risk, that that's something we should generally avoid. Or if we do take it, it's sort of like, you know, you're just sort of shooting for the moon. But really, we should be taking more managed risks, which is thinking about the upside, weighing the downside, thinking of ways you can mitigate downside risk, which usually means giving up some upside risk and sort of choosing that middle path. I'd like to start with the pandemic because I I think everybody can relate to that. And you've written some amazing things. In fact, I go back to an article you wrote in March of 2020. So the very early days of the American part of the pandemic. And you wrote about the distinction between risk and uncertainty. Can you explain that difference and how we move from one to the other? Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess I was more hopeful that we would when I wrote that almost a year ago. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> I've now moved on from obsessing from that to Bayesian updating, which we'll talk about too, Please. which is, you know, there's a lot of ways you can define risk. I, I, in my head, have a very clear definition, which is risk is a definition of uncertainty. The future is always uncertain. You have absolutely no idea what's going to happen in the future, but you can put an estimate on what you think is likely to happen and how probable it is. And that's risk for me. Risk would be almost like a probability distribution of everything that could happen upside, downside, how likely it is. And it's an estimate of what you don't know. Uncertainty is what you have no idea. Like, you know, things always happen. Like no one thought we'd have the year that we did last year or still living, right? I mean, that was uncertain. I mean, I guess we heard about it, but we had no idea how this was all going to play out. So back when I wrote that last year, it was almost a year ago, Yeah, you know, it was like, we had no idea about COVID. We had no idea how deadly it was. We had no idea how much it would spread. We had no idea how much it would upend our lives. So we were living in a realm of like pure uncertainty, where just we had no way of managing risk because we couldn't really put a number or get our hands around what we were even looking at. It does seem like we approach uncertainty and risk in different ways. You know, the risk that you can, in a sense, like an actuarial risk where you can say, all right, I, you know, can estimate how much this is. But uncertainty is a different creature. You you wrote in that article, you wrote, managing uncertainty is expensive. In markets, it means holding cash. In society, it means shutting down. If I look back to March of last year, it seemed like we were unprepared for both. The businesses in our marketplace didn't seem to have enough cash to handle uncertainty. And our, our families and our communities seemed very unprepared for the type of certainty that would require them to shut down. Is, is that fair? It's fair, but I, you can't blame them for that. Because I mean, what sort of no business would be viable if they kept enough cash on hands to 
survive not having any revenue at all for a full year. I mean, who, who, no one can do that, right? And I think that's why there is some room for government when it comes to that, because, you know, it is better poised to offer some liquidity. And, you know, I'm, I'm normally not a big government fan, but I think for extreme cases, I th think of it more like insurance to come in and offer people that liquidity because self-insuring for something like a pandemic is completely non-viable for almost every business in America. This is fascinating because this is where I wanted to go with this. I look at like the Boeing situation or some of these, you know, larger corporations who had, I, I think if we look back over the prior decade, have spent their money in at least arguable ways, you know, questionable ways, ways that people would, you know, buying back shares and, and other things that, you know, I think we could argue about what the value of those are. How much of that kind of behavior is induced by a system where, in a sense, they can discount uncertainty? And how much of it do you think is, as you say, unreasonable to, uh, to plan for or have cash on hand for? It seems like we want businesses to not have cash sitting around, but isn't part of the downside of that, that we wind up in situations where there's a lot more potential for damage or downside risk? There is, but I think businesses should keep cash on hand for normal risks. I mean, if Boeing, you know, kept cash on hand for the fact that no one would fly for like years, potentially, I mean, we would also complain they weren't investing enough and they weren't hiring enough. So, I mean, I think this is why when you have just like a once in a lifetime events, there has to be some level of government intervention because that's a lot more efficient. What the government does when it intervenes is essentially takes some cash from the future and gives it to people now, which is something a person can't do. And to some extent, they've been doing that a lot for large companies through the Fed and through various lending programs. But we probably don't put enough of a value on liquidity for sort of more sort of standard uncertain shocks. I mean, when it, when it comes to share buybacks, you know, I have mixed feelings about them because on the one hand, it's sort of like people now complain that they don't have enough liquidity, but the time when they were doing them pre-pandemic, it was that people thought they should be investing more in other things. And sometimes companies just don't have viable investment options. And in which case, is it better for them to invest in something that has no shot of doing well, that's super risky, or is it better for them just to return the money to shareholders so they could go invest in another company where maybe they have better uh, investment options? Sure, sure. When I was reading some of the stuff that you wrote, I couldn't help but think of my grandfather. He's a guy who grew up in the Great Depression, and he had an obsession with saving. He had an obsession with putting money aside. In fact, when he passed away, he had savings that no one had even pondered that, that he, you know, certainly from all outward indications, he didn't have. It does seem like statistically poorer societies save more and wealthier societies save less. Is there something we can draw from that in terms of how we assess risks or how risks actually are applied in societies? Well, to some extent, it's because, you know, the more money we have and the more technology we have, the less risk we live with, right? If you have more, if you have more money, you know, you just, you can afford to eliminate risk. You know, reducing risk is, poses a cost. So we're just living with less risk as opposed to when you have less money, you face more risk. And, you know, a lot of people can afford to save a lot or just choose not to. So, you know, they would like to save more. And so if they can, they do. I think your grandfather's generation, mainly because they did survive the depression, tended to put a much higher value on saving and self-sufficiency than we do now. I think that that's true. And, and, and you hear about, you know, people living in much poorer countries who are essentially buying treasuries, you know, buying our debt in order to have savings. 
mm-hmm. uh, because they live in a society that has a lot more uncertainty than ours. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm just wondering, you know, that relationship, because I would like to get to a, a question here about how much uncertainty there actually is mm-hmm. in our society if we underestimate it dramatically. It seems like my grandfather, even in a society that grew in his lifetime increasingly affluent and increasingly prosperous, still seemed to fear uncertainty far more than than I have or my generation has. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about the Bayesian side of this. You said you've been dabbling in that more in recent days. How has your analysis of uncertainty around the pandemic or around the economy changed since you wrote that article in March? Well, um, we've learned a lot, right? We've learned a lot about COVID. And I think we have a much better sense of how it spreads now. So if you're being a Bayesian, you update your priors as you learn more information, right? Right. And I would hope by now we would be more thoughtful about the policies we have had to mitigate spread. You know, it seems like we're still going with some places just sort of like, let's it all hang out. Or other places are like, let's completely lock down and you can't even go to the beach. And it seems like, you know, we could use the data and what we've learned about COVID to maybe formulate policies that are maybe a more sensible middle ground. Right, right. What would that look like, do you think, from a state standpoint, which is where we've kind of done most of this? Well, I think, you know, would still encourage lots of outdoor social activities. You know, I think we've learned you can't, even with a vaccine, you know, so now being distributed, albeit slowly, we've learned that, you know, just expecting people to be locked away and never seeing people is not healthy, not for them, not for society, and it's not sustainable. So, you know, encouraging people to do more outdoor activities and not clamping down on those. Encouraging mask use, but not insisting that people wear, you know, when they're on a hiking trail. You know, sort of just sort of, as I said, what we've learned about, you know, how this disease spreads, maybe working with that information and going from a piece of fear or just sort of not looking at the data at all. One of the things I really like about your writing is it seems like you genuinely, I'm going to say without without a lot of judgment, can look at the motivations of different people, particularly when it comes to the, the partisan divide that we have. Can you talk just a little bit about how that partisan divide has weighed on our approach to the pandemic. You talk a little bit about how red states and and blue states seem to be occupied by people who have very different priorities or very different risk assessment profiles, maybe is a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing we are seeing, and it's sort of fascinating, is it's been a fascinating risk experiment for me is to watch how the government is really coming in in various states and saying, this is how much risk you can take. You know, everyone has different feelings of how much risk they want to take with COVID. And, you know, to some degree, you know, you do need some outside intervention because what's a good risk for you isn't a risk for someone else. And, you know, you could infect them too. So it isn't really just about you and you making your own individual risk choices. So we've had the government kind of step in and say, you know, depending on the state you're in, this is how much risk you're allowed to take. And I think it's fascinating to watch how different states, and to some degree, there's a strong political component to it, feel about that and how much they're willing to impose and how much risk taking and how much of a sort of sorting we're seeing of how much people are moving across states to maybe move to places that more align with their risk preferences. And this isn't new to COVID. I think this has been brewing for a really long time. I think it's just made a lot more apparent. Like, you know, Republican states tend to have a less vigorous safety because it's more like, you know, manage your own risk. Blue states tend to have higher taxes and more regulations because it's like we want less risk in your life. And I think this has just become a lot more extreme. It's probably become a lot more extreme in the coming years. And we'll probably also see, as I said, a lot of sorting amongst states of where people want to live based on their risk preferences. 
Elon Musk moving from California to Texas, for example. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, great, you know, safety nets and a lot of regulations. Some people like that, but it comes to the cost of higher taxes. Some people don't want to deal with that, but rather live in Texas. I have a whole page here of stuff, quotes from you that you just kind of summed up very nicely. But California requires a license for twice as many occupations as Ohio. You, you kind of go through this. You also identify how red states tended to want to open up more quickly and, and get back to work. I think the thing that I struggle with or the thing that we hear so much now across this partisan divide is that you know, one side is cruel and insensitive. Another side is is overly bureaucratic and overly sensitive. Is this like yin and yang? Is this like two different types of of people who really maybe used to coexist who don't anymore? Or is this truly like th- these people can't live together? They're they're not uh, capable of kind of you know working these things out and maybe should live in different places. How do you look at these two different mindsets? I guess is what I'm getting at. Well, you know, everyone else looks at this and says, we need less federalism. Like we need these national coordinated approaches of how we're doing this. And I kind of feel the opposite looking at how things are going and think, you know, maybe the way we can coexist is through federalism. You know, if you want to live more risk and you want to walk on a hiking trail without wearing a mask, maybe you shouldn't live in New York state. And that's fine. We can be one cohesive country and have different risks preferences and have governments that reflect that. And I think that's just fine. I thought a lot about this year, why this has become more apparent. And I think to some degree, it is wealth and technology changes. Like, you know, when you have shifts to the wealth distribution, you get some people becoming much richer. You know, when you're richer, you become much more risk averse. I mean, we tend to think that when you're more secure, you're better poised to take risk, but actually the opposite happens is the more money you have, the more risk averse you tend to be. So when you have like big shifts in wealth redistribution, you have some part of the society becoming incredibly risk averse, but also having a lot of power. So imposing that on other people. So, you, you know, there is a sense, some advantage in having more federalism where not everyone is having to live by the same risk preferences. Also, technology is also changing things because technology is very important in how we perceive risk. And when we have big shocks to both wealth and technology, we tend to get confused about risk, not quite sure how to make good risk assessments and tend to go to a place of more risk aversion. This is fascinating. Let me repeat back what you just said, because I'm not sure that I either fully understand it or see this the same way that you do. And I, I want to make sure that I do. You're saying as we grow more affluent, we become more risk averse. Mm-hmm. We actually are going to do things that limit our risk. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to include savings though, right? Yeah. I think one of the premises that I had coming into this conversation, and, and I'll go back to my grandfather again, you know, back in the great depression, my grandfather who grew up during the depression, during world war II. Mm-hmm. He had like a a weird obsession with what I would call the uncertainty of life. You know, the Mm -hmm. fact that you really couldn't plan what was going to happen a year from now, two years from now, in a way that I'm not very sensitive to. And so he saved, he, you know, was very frugal. He did things in a way that I just don't do. And, and people of my generation don't do, even though we are far more affluent, we seem to be more sensitive to, you know, my daughter going out uh, to the park by herself freaks us out, even though statistically that's a, a very low risk. She's 16 now, driving a car seems to freak us out, you know, a little bit statistically more risk there, but still not very big. Yet my generation, we tend to not save. We tend mm-hmm. to not have a fallback. 
can you reconcile those things with with the insight that you just said? You know, we, you know, as we become more affluent, become more sensitive to risk. Is it a different type of risk we become sensitive to? Well, I think, you know, your father's a different generation where, you know, you got less government support. So he had to save a lot more for uncertainty. I think even low income people, especially low income people don't have a lot of savings now. It's not like they have a higher saving rate than richer people. I think richer people actually you know, still have a lot more wealth just because they're in a better position financially to save. So I think to some degree that's generational more than economic. But I think we do see a lot of instances of sort of higher income people becoming a lot more risk averse. I mean, or even defining what risk is. I mean, I think we see sort of certainly in like, you know, elite American colleges, the idea that anyone would even offend you is too much of an intolerable risk, Uh, let alone that, you know, your child plays on a playground uh, where they could fall. You wrote in an article in December, quoting a historian, you said, each new crisis in the industrial area era increased awareness of new downside risk and ratcheted up the reach and scope of the welfare state. The world was always risky. Famines and disease outbreaks regularly killed many people, but market economies offered more wealth and scope to diversify and insure. It seems like the argument is that, and and I I tend to agree with this, that, that the wealthier we became as a society, the more we could insure ourselves, the less we feel we need a buffer against this uncertainty. Is, is that how you think of it? Uh, yeah. I mean, that could be why we said we do save less. Right. Do you think that that has had a big impact on the partisan divide or the, uh, you know, the way Americans have approached this pandemic? That we've become more risk averse or less risk averse? Essentially that we have, you know, with each crisis, I mean, as, as you stated here, you know, with, with each crisis, we've kind of ratcheted up the reach and the scope of the state mm-hmm. to kind of mitigate our risks. I guess I'm looking at, we're kind of falling back on the idea that in my grandpa's sense, we don't need to self-insure, you know, I don't need savings. I don't need fallback protection. I don't need what have you because the state has my back. Mm-hmm. Do you think that is a phenomenon that we've actually experienced here in this country? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, actually, that saving rates have gone up a lot during the pandemic, right? Although I think that's largely because we got so much money from the government and had nowhere to spend it right? Um, more than risk averted. Although, you know, I was thinking about the other day, you know, one of the signs of less risk taking in our society has been that people are less likely to move. And I mean, I don't think the data has come out yet, but anecdotally, it seems like people are moving like crazy, right? A sure. time of extreme uncertainty, where it's going to be really hard to make new friends or contacts wherever you go, but people are moving like never before, like they have in years. It's interesting because the people that I know, and this is anecdotal, uh, but the people that I know that have moved have largely been people who I would say are insurance moving. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're moving closer to family. They're moving out of big cities. They're moving to places where they, in a sense, have more options. It's, it's almost a mitigation move. Mm-hmm. Does that square with what you're thinking of? I think we don't have the data yet. People I know are, aren't moving necessarily to be close to family. They're moving really for more space. Yeah. I mean, that could be because I'm in New York. So right, uh, right. I think space all of a sudden has become this big premium. Right. Yeah. I know a few New Yorkers who have moved out. Part of it is space. It's one thing to spend a pandemic in an 800 square foot apartment. It's another to spend it in a 2000 square foot home. But also, you know, a, a sense of uncertainty, I think, has also been part of it. You know, do I do I feel safer in a smaller town? Do I feel safer in a suburb or do I feel safer in a big city? Do you get any of that sense from where you're at? 
about safety. I think it's that it's a desire for space. And also, I talk to a lot of people who just want to do something new and are kind of leaping in. Like I'm in the process of buying an apartment, which to me seems like an insane risk. Financially, that never makes sense in New York. You should always rent. But it's sort of like, I feel this overwhelming need to sort of, as I said, make a big change. And I've talked to a lot of people, again, this is anecdotal because the data still hasn't been, you know, collected and uh, looked at yet. It's just, I think a lot of people are looking for to make a change. And it's interesting that it's something that brought on so much uncertainty that that came with. Yeah. I was trying to get us to a point here where I was going to ask you some macro questions, Mm -hmm. but I I find myself a little bit confused, not because you've answered these questions in in odd ways, but I think because of the way I was kind of framing this or thinking about this, I'm still kind of struggling maybe to grasp the individual reaction to risk. Mm -hmm. When we look at savings rate, it's clear that amongst the wealthy, and amongst the affluent and amongst those in this country with 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 options and means savings has gone up tremendously during the pandemic i know just from my own standpoint i'm saving a few hundred dollars a month on driving just because mm-hmm. we don't go anywhere you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's a lot easier to save that way poor people do not have that that option clearly because they they don't have as much money you know as discretionary money to save and a lot of them here in my town don't have a car anyway they mm-hmm. you know that's not a it's not a savings that they can realize when i'm making a contrast between our economy and our society and our poor with the poor of other countries and and let's go to a place like china or a place like india mm-hmm. where the poor have very high savings rates what is it that's different about our society they don't have much of a safety net in China. Okay. So here in this country, the poor don't have to save as much because there is, in a sense, a backstop. Is that a fair way to interpret yeah, what well, you said? Particularly in China, there's really not much of a retirement program. So, and in a, with a one-child policy, you can't rely on your kids either. So that means people have to save a lot for retirement, Right. a lot more than we do. Is this kind of where my grandpa would have found himself in, in, in the 1930s? You know, having, having I, I can't remember exactly what year he was born, but he was, uh, he was 20 years old at the end of World War II. So I guess mm-hmm. that would have put him around 25, 1925, he would have been born. So he grew up in the Great Depression and he talked about it a lot. Obviously, the social safety net was not a real presence in his life then. Is this something that you think would have affected the way people of that generation would have looked at risk and uncertainty compared to say, I'm in my mid forties, people of my generation have grown up always with an understanding that there would be kind of some fallback position, some help if you needed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, you're going to get quite a bit of money from social security one day. We do have a lot more support from the government. And I think largely that that makes sense. The article you referenced, I talk a lot about how every time you have this big economic shock, it always shakes up our safety net. You know, the depression was real a real watershed that way. And that, you know, it was the first sort of big economic shock that happened, you know, uh, after we'd really moved to cities and were really fully industrialized. So before, you know, you kind of handled your own risk or you handled risk within your community. But sort of the nature of having a more industrial economy meant that risks were in some ways more severe and also more uh, systematic and that everyone experienced them at the same time because everyone was now more sort of beholden to the market. 
So, and you also were living in cities where you had a lot more anonymity. So it kind of raised this idea that we also were a lot richer. That was the other big thing that the government would step in and be this presence of risk reduction in our life, which, you know, there was certainly a big role for them to do. And I think that made sense in some ways. It depends. I mean, it's like, you know, nature piece of how you structure it. Your grandfather, sorry, was still a holdover of sort of having to feel like he was individually responsible for his own risk reduction. I want to layer on top of that because I I feel like that makes a ton of sense to me. If we look back at like, just say the banking system back in the the 1920s going into the 1930s, very localized, certainly, you know, the bank runs of the 1930s and everything suggests that they weren't as uh, well capitalized or part of this larger FDIC system that was developed during that period of time. Now, today we have banks that, you know, for the most part, we don't even, as consumers, we don't even think about, you know, Mm -hmm. I I put my money in the bank. I'm not worried about it. It's a risk that has been mitigated. Is that another one of these? I'm trying to draw a parallel here between our individual actions and our collective actions. Is this another instance of us, in a sense, having more faith in a broader system or a broader economy, a broader level of affluence so that we don't have to worry about risk in the same way people of the past may have had to worry about it? Yeah. And I mean, a lot of this, is said, is due to regulation. You know, another big part of the depression was the first huge round of um, sort of financial regulation and things like FDIC insurance coming about, which again, if it's well-structured can be quite efficient, right? You know, it doesn't, it's not efficient that every individual manages their own risk. There is value in diversification. So you, you do want people to come together and manage risks as a whole. You can get more bang for your buck, I guess, in terms of risk-taking. This is a big theme in my book of the value of diversification, which is, you know, Almost always, you know, there's that trade-off of risk and reward. The more risk you take, the more reward you get. The one exception to that rule is diversification, which is if you diversify, you can take less risk and get the same amount of reward. So there's a value in making people come together and collectivize their risk. It just depends on how you do it. And that was a big part of sort of early safety net programs where effectively it was that level of insurance. Or as I said, like FDIC insurance, like it's inefficient to always worry that your bank might lose your money. So FDIC insurances actually can be quite efficient that way. Those early risks that the the bank in the 1930s might have had, or that my grandfather might have grown up with, were risks of uncertainty. You know, like they could say, they could look and say, well, you know, I I run the risk of uh, breaking my leg or needing hospitalization. I I run the risk of, you know, the, the, the normal everyday things. The bank could say, you know, we run the risk of making a bad investment or having a loan go bad and we can calculate those. But it, it was uncertainty that really was the thing that they couldn't handle. And it seems like today we have become, if we want to say our affluence has self-insured us against a certain degree of uncertainty that allows us as, as individuals or as local actors to not really worry about uh, some of those things like a pandemic as much as say my grandfather would have. Is that a fair interpretation of of your yeah, work? Yeah, I think for sure. I think it's it's really that we're more resilient, right? We've built a much more resilient society. I mean, even look at how we handled the pandemic before we handled it in 1918. I mean, granted, that was a very different kind of disease. Like it mainly targeted, I mean, I don't even know how we would have handled that. That targeted mainly people under 30. You know, people would like drop down the streets and turn blue. I mean, it was horrific. But if you think about it, like, and you think like, they never even like really shut down society. You know, a lot of people died. It was pretty bad. And it was young people in the prime of their life. 
And, you know, people lived with that risk much more than we can even tolerate today for a disease that hits a completely different age distribution, mostly. To some extent, that's not just that our, our, our values have shifted and we value life more. It's that we have a lot more money and we're a lot more resilient where we could do this. I mean, it just wouldn't have been feasible that you could shut down society to the extent we have this year. When people in the beginning were like, well, if we do this, people will die from a recession too. Remember when everyone said that? Right. Well, and some people have, but not that many. But like in 1918, like a lot of people would have died from a recession like that. Like people would have not gotten food. You know, pe- most people could have not gone to work. I mean, now a lot of people can work from home we're rich enough as a society we can like get money into people's pockets like none of those things were on the table in 1918 so we just kind of had to like stand by as like a lot of people died tragically young here's why i want to pivot this i'm glad you said all that because i agree with that i I think that makes a lot of sense i I wonder though and i'm almost getting into the idea of reinsurance you know the idea that i'm a big bank i'm not worried because i'm hedged uh, but then you find out that, you know, AIG is your insurer and they're not, you know, hedged either. It seems like at the local level, when we think about these things or, or we don't think about these things because, you know, we're part of this affluent society and, and things are going to be taken care of. And we are, in a sense, as communities too big to fail. We're relying on the solvency or the, the uh, you know, the backstop of a system that in many ways seems very shaky. How should we think about the financial health of the federal government in a system where, in a sense, we're relying on that health to be our backstop? Shouldn't shouldn't we be a little freaked out about, you know, a Federal Reserve that is had decades now of extraordinary measures, you know, essentially experimental monetary policy? Do these things should they bother us in any way? How should we think about them? Yeah, we should. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's often lost in the conversation is, you know, you want in times like this, which is let's hope is a once in a lifetime experience. But, you know, there'll be other uncertain risks that come our way in our lifetime that are going to involve some government intervention. And you want them to throw all the money at it they can when you need it. That is the reason why not nearly as many people are going to die from this as they did from earlier pandemics. But that also means that when times get back to normal and we get into recovery, and I think we'll have a pretty vigorous recovery, you can't keep doing it. You have to get your house in order so you have that fiscal space to spend when you need it. Like you need to think of this spending like insurance. Like I was just reading in the New York Times today a story of like mainstream economists have been proving wrong yet again because we were able to spend before the pandemic and you know, interest rates didn't go up or we didn't have crazy inflation. It's like Yeah, we got lucky, but that doesn't mean it's always going to be true. We're making bets that interest rates and inflation are going to go up for like 50 years. Like, I mean, maybe 10 years, sure, but 50? We have no idea what the world's going to look like in 50 years. It's like anything. It's like if you take on a lot of debt, you know you have a lot less financial space and you're a lot less resilient when uncertainty comes along. It's like you're saying about you have all this insurance, but you're not thinking about the reinsurance. Insurance is great, but it's great for risk. It's terrible for uncertainty because uncertainty are the risks you never saw coming. You can't insure against something you can't imagine. It's like all these poor restaurants in New York that had insurance for shutdowns, but that insurance didn't cover a pandemic. It like only covered things like, you know, a gas shutoff. So you can only insure what you can imagine. And so the only insurance against uncertainty is resilience. And when we take on all this debt, or the Fed takes a policy that we're going to keep rates low, no matter what happens, because we're not worried about inflation ever again, then, you know, all that means is you're less resilient for another big shock. 
I don't want this to come across as a, as a partisan statement, but it seems to me the more active you want government to be in a in difficult times, whether that is you know an individual having a difficulty, a community having a difficulty, a, a, a state or an economy having a difficulty, then the more kind of reflexively conservative, I would look at my grandfather again and say almost paranoid that you need to be about the macro economy, like the less risk you should be willing to take there. Is that a sound thesis or what am I missing? No, I think that's right. I mean, it disturbs me that people have pretty much written off risk based on 10 years of data. Like when you study finance, you learn the only way to really measure risk. And again, it's still a measurement that is you know, imperfect is to look at hundreds of years of data if it's available. So the fact that people are like, well, interest rates haven't gone up in 20 years, so I guess they'll never go up for another 30, 50 years, to me sounds insane. Like you really do want to focus on resilience because they said the macro variables change. They change a lot and you never know how they're going to change. Do you remember in 2000, I think it was 2008, when uh, you know Hank Paulson went to Nancy Pelosi and said, you know, if we don't get $800 billion for the banks tomorrow, there'll be no food on the shelves in, in three days. To me, that was a defining moment for me in my kind of personal assessment of risk, where, where I said, these people don't have this under control. Like, like, I really can't count on the reinsurance of the federal government or of the macro system. Did you share that experience with me? Am, am I overly paranoid in that sense? No, because they came through, right? They ended right. Up, I mean, she ended up giving him what he needed. Right. I, I guess for me, it was the wake-up call was, I didn't realize that we lived in a system that was that fragile. I kind of thought it, but I hadn't really thought it through. I there might have been a little melodrama there. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, don't know. I don't know if we would have been like back to like the Dust Bowl, but certainly it would have been more painful. The Great Recession would have been more painful. It was already pretty painful, but it would have been even more painful. Yeah. Well, there would have been more than toilet paper not on the shelves for a while. Or, or just there would have been more un, even more unemployment or, right. you know, I mean, I think people still would have gotten stuff. I mean, I think what we learned in the pandemic, which is another thing I'm thinking about, is sort of efficiency versus resilience. I remember it was, oh, wow, again, a year ago, I was in Iowa giving a speech and I shared an airport shuttle with a bunch of um, people who own meatpacking plants. And back then, no one was that interested in COVID, right? It was sort of like, yeah, you know, another H1N1. And I remember talking to these meat packers, and they were like, we're really concerned about COVID. We're right. really concerned this is going to mess with our supply chain, and we're not going to be able to make meat. And that was the first time I was genuinely concerned about it. And everyone I talked to in Iowa seemed much more aware of the implications of what COVID would mean than anyone I knew in New York. And I, I decided it's because they still make things. So in some ways, they're actually much more tied to the global economy than even I am, or like the way all the service people are in New York. Right. I, I remember in the early days, I was kind of freaking out. There were people around here freaking out because the supply chains were breaking down. And what it was resulting in is the slaughter of tens of thousands of hogs and tens of thousands of, of chickens not because there wasn't demand for it, but because there wasn't like a recipient. You know, if you were used to sending your chickens to McDonald's or your eggs to McDonald's and all of a sudden they just weren't accepting them anymore, like they didn't have a market for it, so they weren't mm -hmm. buying them. You couldn't really turn around and sell them to the local diner very quickly. And so you had to make a decision and that often meant 
culling your flock, you know, getting rid of thousands of birds or thousands of hogs as opposed to feeding them because you would go broke very quickly. It did seem like our economy is set up for a certain level of efficiency and not a, a level of adaptability that you would have to have to deal with uncertainty. I hear you arguing that maybe we do have more adaptability than I would give it credit for. You know, one argument that I'm skeptical of is therefore we need to be able to make everything here. I don't know if we have to go that far. I think maybe our supply chain shouldn't be tied up with one country. Like the meat packers I spoke to in Iowa, they get all their, I didn't want to realize this was true, but I guess it is. They use chemicals to make meat. It's icky, but I guess the the reality. Yeah, no, there's chemicals in the process, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, they're like, our chemicals all come from China. And that was when China was shut down and they're like, we might not get our chemicals. We can't make meat. I was like, well, maybe you should get, we should not just rely on just China for the chemicals, but if you had like 15 different countries, then you would be more resilient and potentially more efficient. Let me give you this last question here. And I I wrote this one out and I want to try to read it as close to what I wrote it. I wrote my my experience is that local communities, whether it's a, a local government or collection of people that live in a place they tend to worry about small risks, but tend to not worry about uncertainty. They, they tend to worry about something like a business storefront that will stay empty or a, a news article about a crime that will reflect negatively on the community, but they don't worry about whether they're going to have the capacity to maintain their critical systems, their, their sewer systems, their water systems, their electricity and transport systems, their pensions. And they don't worry about it because there's a sense that if things are really tough, someone's going to be there to help them you know, the federal government's going to be there to help them. How should they be thinking about their own fragility in in the context of the system we've created, which it seems to me is, you know, in that reinsurance sense and that federal government sense, it is very risky right now. Well, I mean, to some degree, that is the role of government, right? And I mean, as I said, it's efficient to have government take on those functions. So, I mean, if you're, you know, a storefront owner or a commercial landlord, you know, you'll never even, you know, get into the pool if you're worried about all those risks. I mean, or in certain sources of uncertainty, you do kind of have to have some some level of suspension of disbelief and sort of some faith in your government that they'll make sure the water's still flowing. But as I said, the question is, is how resilient are you? And this is something you know, I'm certainly rethinking because would it have been efficient for absolutely every business, every commercial landlord owner to have a, a year's worth of liquidity in the bank? I mean, our economy would grow a lot slower if that was true. And is that a bargain we're willing to strike? Or is it more efficient to find ways to do support for a once in a lifetime kind of event, but also be able to sort of self-insure against something that's a little bit more reasonable? Isn't that a little bit the the argument that, and I'll go, I know you've written a little bit about government pensions and local governments. Isn't that a little bit the the debate that local governments had over pensions? You know, we can grow a little bit more quickly or we can, uh, you know, invest in, I, I mean, I've worked with local governments for decades. We can invest in more roads or more sewer, more infrastructure. We can uh, put some money towards qualify for this federal grant or federal loan that we would otherwise not get if we weren't willing to commit the money. But it is going to mean we shortchange our pension a little bit. But hey, we'll be able to make that up because we're going to grow so quickly. That's not a trade-off my grandfather would have ever made. You know, he would have said, you made this promise, you take care of that first, and then you worry about these other things. Well, I think that's different because you know, I mean, if they actually did proper accounting, yeah, they would see that they're not going to grow their way out of their pension problem ever. 
Right. As, as opposed to assuming that you're not going to have a pandemic, that means you don't collect for your rent for your, I mean, that's probably a reasonable thing to have assumed or to assume that your government will have the wherewithal to like, you know, fix sewers. I think those are reasonable things to assume, but to assume that you can have like a 30% funded pension and that, you know, if you build a good road, you'll have so much growth, you're, that's not going to be a problem. I mean, that's just clearly not, the, the numbers don't add up. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I will send you some stuff on the sewer and water part because that, I don't know how much you know about strong towns. We've done a little bit with the Manhattan Institute, but not a, a ton. Our basic premise is that our cities are functionally insolvent. Like they have built more stuff, built more water systems, sewer systems, uh, transportation systems, ma made more promises than they have the tax base to actually sustain. It is one of these things where I see local governments being very you know, very blasé under the idea that not only are they too big to fail uh, or, you know, they won't be allowed to fail, but that there's someone there who will help them when they really need help. And I question whether that's true. It's a great question because I don't, I think a lot of state and local governments are betting on that they're going to get a federal bailout. And I think we've already seen when they were debating federal and state relief, with the pandemic packages, there's very little appetite for that. I mean, I think it's one thing when the government bails you out for a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic you could have not possibly insured for. It's another thing when you have spent like crazy and underfunded your pension when you kind of like knowingly took on a risk. This isn't uncertainty. This is pure risk. I said the numbers do not add up. So this is actually being quite irresponsible and having an insurable risk and choosing not to do anything about it. So I think they also are banking on some sort of bailout, but it's uh, unlikely to happen. I think you see this in Detroit, and I, I don't know how familiar you are with the Detroit bankruptcy and, mm -hmm. and the bill. There, a little. Ultimately, the novel thing that came out of that, or the, I, I say novel, not in terms of I admire it, but I, I'm novel the way the coronavirus is novel, like we haven't seen it before, is that the bondholders got stiffed in favor of the pensions because of you know, the way some of the foundations and other funding places stepped in. That doesn't seem like a repeatable model. It always happens. I mean, honestly, yeah, like this, like the way I think about it is any sort of like default is there's pensioners, there's bondholders, and then there's citizens who rely on services. Right. And those, that's sort of the order of seniority too. First yeah, the, thing that's going to get the, cut is like library hours and road right. repairs. Then they're going to cut bondholders. Then they're going to cut pensioners. I can't think of any fiscal distress where pensioners got cut first. Even the Greek debt crisis. Yeah. Like they didn't cut pensions or sure. they cut pensions barely, but like bondholders took a big haircut. Puerto Rico too. So if you are concerned about services, if you're concerned about the quality of life of your place and, and living there and whether your road will be maintained or your library will be open or your park will be mowed, you're standing a line behind a lot of other places. Yeah. I said, look at any um, sort of default situation or financial crisis and said, you're, you're back of the line. Alison Schrager, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. It did not go the way that I think it would go, but I feel like I learned a lot. I hope this is <laughs> time well spent for you. And I, I hope you feel like the, the questions illuminated your work. Oh, absolutely. I, I said, I hope even if it didn't go where you thought it would, it went somewhere useful for you. No, it definitely did. I think our listeners will, will enjoy this and appreciate it. And I, I'd love to circle back with you. I, I told you I ordered your book and I'm not sure why it hasn't arrived yet. 
we have these two-day deliveries. So I, th- I thought it would be here by now, but uh, it is not. Maybe it's in such hot demand that uh, it's not shown up yet, but- uh, Yeah, things are crazy. Well, I live in the middle of Minnesota. You know, it's not like Alaska, your mm-hmm. homesteading place. <laughs> uh, so, you know, which should get here. When I read that, I'd, I'd love to circle back with you and maybe we can do this again at some point. Yeah, I'd love to. Allison Traeger is an economist, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at, at Allison Schrager and get her book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk, wherever books are sold. Allison, thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. You take care. You too. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.